Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Serial Mom from 1994 with my wonderful guests, Drew Gregory and Tiro Schneider. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield. And today on the show, I have two wonderful guests, Drew Burnett Gregory and Tiro Schneider. Hello, both of you. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having us. Hello. Thank you. (laughs) So this time around, we watched the film Serial Mom from 1994. How was this viewing experience for both of you this time around? Um, I actually hadn't, it's one of the few John Waters movies I haven't seen. And so I was really thrilled to have this excuse to do so. I feel like because he hasn't made that many movies, like I've sort of savored when I've, when I've watched them, but I I loved it. Tirosh, how about you? Yeah, I had never seen it before and I loved it so much. I had a blast. Yeah, it was like truly the most fun beginning to end. Yay. Um, I love this movie. I think it's wonderful. And I feel like it does not get the credit that it deserves. Like even in this rewatch, I went back and read um, Roger Ebert's review because sometimes I like to read what he used to say about movies. And he did not like this movie. He just did not get it. He didn't get the tone. He took it kind of realistically. And that's not how a John Waters film is. It's its own special thing. So we're going to talk about that this time around. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I chose this film. We haven't talked about John Waters on the show. Um, I think this film is really great and a really great example of what he does. And then I also think because it's Halloween, this is a really great example of a film that's both fun and like a little bit scary, but not really scary. Like it's like a fun movie that you could watch at Halloween if you're someone that can't handle actual scary movies like me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like this take on a serial killer trope, but it's very funny. So it's Halloween, but not too scary. So that's why I chose it for like this time around and this time of year. Um, so I'm going to give a plot synopsis for listeners who might not have seen this movie and who want to know what it's about. Uh, basically this movie stars Kathleen Turner as Beverly Sutphin. She's just a perfect mom, like your stereotypical 1950s Mrs. Cleaver kind of mom. She's, she's perfect. And she has a perfect family unit with her husband, Sam Waterston. His name in the movie is Eugene. He's a dentist. Um, and her two perfect, like teen to early twenties, I guess, kids who are played by Ricky Lake and um matthew lillard and they're named chip and misty in this film anyway so we've got this perfect family unit everything's great and shiny and sunny um but we find out beverly has some tendencies that are a little bit 
disturbing or serial killer-esque. She's been sending out threatening notes to people in the neighborhood. They're kind of funny. I love that she calls someone pussy face and like that's supposed to be like, no, not pussy face. Anyway, it's very funny. So um, so she's been sending threatening letters to people who've been kind of bothering her, breaking the polite norms that people are supposed to follow, she thinks. And um, one day she just kind of snaps and actually kills somebody. She kills her son's math teacher because he's being kind of a jerk and being rude about her kid. So she runs over him with a car and that sets off a bunch of killings where she goes around (laughs) killing people that do things that she thinks are rude. And it is both, it's all about the tone of the piece. That sounds pretty dark, right? But no, it's very funny. It's very over the top. It's very campy. Um, So she goes on killing throughout the film. It all comes to a standoff at the end where she, well, we're going to go through all the kills, I think. But she, there's this boy, Scotty, who's friends with her kids, who's kind of awful. We don't really like Scotty. He doesn't wear his seatbelt. And she burns him on a stage in front of people um so she gets arrested by the police and she goes on trial and um she gets away with it because of the way that she presents herself as this kind of perfect stereotypical 1950s mom and um at the very end she (laughs) kills one of the jurors for wearing white shoes after labor day um and it's kind of the way John Waters frames it is like he tries to make it look like this is a real thing that happened, but he doesn't use like the language that we're used to hearing with chirons that are like based on a true story. He uses words that are like slightly different from that. So, you know, it's not real, but he wants you to think it's real. And at the end of the film, we have a chiron that says um, that Beverly Sutphin did not want to participate in the making of this film. So it's great. It's like a it's it's all this film is all about the tone. I gave you the plot, but we're really going to get into the tone. Um So yeah, what made this film kind of special or uniquely John Waters to you both? I think for me, it's sort of the response to maybe like how other work of his has been perceived. And Mm. you can like, you definitely feel a sort of, I was going to say bitterness, but I think he's too like self-confident to even be bitter, but like a, a, like a, like a, a mockery of, of sort of this idea that sex on screen perversion on screen um even violence on screen like is somehow is somehow like causing the downfall of society when you know we have a culture in 1994 and certainly still today that like like obsesses over true crime and like you know trial murder trials that that become like front page news and and the way that media covers everything and like you know people love violence and love all of this gore and so the idea that like watching a certain movie is somehow like going to ruin society when everyone is watching or not everyone but like you know a lot of people are watching the news and getting something that's like even more perverse um you feel him just sort of being like look how silly this is there's even later on in the film in the courtroom, there's that quote about like, you're not the things that you read. Like she puts the detective on stand. And that mm-hmm. was actually one of my modern lens ones where I was like, I don't love what she used in that reference. We'll talk about later. Um, but yeah, because part of the case against her is like, you were reading serial killer books. And she's like, it's okay. Just because I read them doesn't mean I'm doing it. I haven't seen too many John Waters movies, although I did last night watch uh, Female Trouble 
which mm. is also incredible. And I'd recently seen Multiple Maniacs and um, what's the oh uh, Pink Flamingos is maybe his most is that maybe his most famous of the like I would early say. trash trilogy. Yeah. 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 So I think this was I think I'd seen Crybaby ages ago, but wasn't sort of able to contextualize it as John Waters. So this was sort of my first you know commercialist waters um and it i love that it still felt very much him and very much silly and weird and like the line deliveries are still just bizarre throughout and don't there's just moments that feel like a bunch of kids with a movie camera making uh, something to make themselves laugh which is like what's so amazing about him doing this even with a bigger budget but it also feels like this idea that the suburbs are the real violence and like the suburbs are the real oppression and fe- like that's the thing to be scared of, um, which I think is present in his early stuff and really comes through in this um, that I found really profound that it feels like they've cut themselves off from the violence of the world. That's like what the suburbs have done is trying to create this illusion of a violenceless society Um and therefore they're obsessed with it because I think we can't stand because we are connected to the violence. We just don't want to we want to pretend we're not. Well, and what's fun about John Waters, all his films are set in Baltimore. And usually I feel like they're set in kind of like the grittier parts of Baltimore. And so it's so interesting that this is the film that he makes about suburban Baltimore, where eventually they do go downtown. But this is like the most violent, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a really good point about the suburban aspect of it. Yeah. And Tirish and I were talking the other day about how so much satire like succeeds in satirizing one aspect of something but there's a certain inherent smugness to satire that sometimes results in like oh a movie is like really good at satirizing capitalism but then oh it falls short when it comes to like gender or like things like that and I think I think this movie succeeds so well because it is such a good satire of like true crime and the media and all that but it's also a really good satire of that sort of suburban normativity and it balances all of its targets so to speak really well yeah I was trying to like describe the tone of this piece to myself like how do you how do you even describe it and the closest that I came was like it's like if saved by the bell was about a serial killer you know it's got that like these old timey tropes of like what family or friendship or teens mean and are, but then it's got like these fun, dirty, gritty, campy things about it. Like say by the bell is campy too, but I couldn't like, there's no, there's no real way to describe exactly what John Waters does. And I feel like this, this film is in his like shinier part of his career. Like I think that there's like the grittier early part, which T. Roshan mentioned earlier, the trash trilogy like multiple maniacs pink flamingos and and Mal trouble yeah yeah so that's like a trilogy but that's a different kind of tone and style uh for john waters like it's it's kind of taking the grittiest dirtiest things you can think of like divine at one point she's like i think they call her the dirtiest woman in the world and she eats poop off the street right so we've got like that kind of john waters and then Um, In the early 80s, we have polyester, which kind of shifts John Waters into making a different kind of film that's like it contains elements of that that we still see in this film, like um, when a husband burps, a wife will get stabbed like there's still kind of gross things in this Uh, when a woman gets stabbed, a rat will also bite her leg dogs lick people's feet in this for pleasure (laughs) like there's still like elements of that kind of tackiness right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I mean, John Waters is called the Pope of Trash for a reason, but then it's like elevated in this really gorgeous looking film. And I think like polyester after polyester, we get hairspray and we get crybaby and we get cereal mom and we get pecker and they all have like a much more polished look about them, but they still contain elements of the, the trashy kind of tacky John Waters stuff too. Yeah. I also think that like, it's fun because this movie is like talking about horror and and other movies like it, we get a few reference points like yeah. we have like uh, at one point they're watching Straight Jacket with Joan Crawford and you and so there's I think it's clear that like this is a very sort of explicit take on the I don't know like what was called like hag exploitation that like Joan Crawford and Betty Davis start like mm-hmm. starting with like whatever happened to Baby Jane. And taking that to the next level of of like this mix of camp and melodrama and slasher. Um, that's like the closest sort of tonal comparison. But there's a real self-awareness. Like not that those movies didn't have some semblance of self-awareness, but I don't think they quite, like everyone involved in this movie, it feels like knows what they're making. Whereas some of yes. those, it, it was like kind of, some of the fun was the contrast of some people maybe thinking they were in like, like they were making something really great in a I mean I think those movies are great but like making something great in like a, a more sort of traditional sense and this is like everyone knows that they're making something satirical and campy yes well and those films were based in the quote-unquote real world and this film clearly is not based in any sort of semblance of reality and everybody's in on that um so I think that's also what helps and sells it and I think Roger Ebert somehow did not get that like he was judging Kathleen Turner's performance like she's playing this mental illness so weirdly and I'm like no dude come on this is a stylistic choice this is a comedy it's very and he thought that it was only one joke he thought that it was like her making the joke of look how perfect I am on the outside I'm gonna kill you and I was like that's not the only joke at play here there's layers I found Ebert's review fascinating because he was like trying he actually he didn't hate the movie he was trying to get at the heart of why he found it upset or like not funny and it was he was like she Kathleen Turner was too good he was like she played her as a compassionate woman and we need to be able to laugh at her he also at the end of his review says we I think John Waters has too much heart he can't help but show his characters compassionately and we need to not have compassion for her in order to laugh and I think he's right but wrong I think it's still funny and that John Waters does kind of have compassion for her. I don't think he yeah, hates yeah. her. That's why I found his review so fascinating because I think he's right. I just think he's wrong about that making it unfunny. Yeah. <laughs> but but I do think that like, I, I heard someone say once that like you can't, the bad parodies hate what they're parodying. That there's a there's a sort of resentment or disdain. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about like Spaceballs is Mel Brooks's worst film because he doesn't like Star Wars. He could care less about Star Wars, but like he loves Westerns. Um, I think Spaceballs is still great, but- <laughs> Um, but that like John Waters loves these horror movies. I've been reading like interviews with him about um mm-hmm. what are the what are the William Castle and mm-hmm. um who's the other one Herschel um uh, uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis yeah who he's like these are his heroes and he like he was with Herschel Gordon Lewis on like the last night before he died like he loves these people so it's like I don't know it's beautiful to watch a director tri- make a tribute to his idols and then still have his own silly campy gross style john waters plays uh william castle in feud the the um, oh, right the ryan murphy the show so it's a, yeah. yes yeah, that's a funny Which little... he mentions in every interview because i think he's so <laughs> proud of it well, the last thing i was going to say is that like you're talking about satire I, I was watching an interview with 
John Waters where he says like, I truly just want to make people laugh and I want to make myself laugh. He's obviously saying a lot with this. And I think what makes it also tolerable is that he's not really trying to say anything. Like he's mm. the smugness of so much satire is like, I'm going to prove a point. And I think he proves points much more effectively because he's most concerned with making a really fun movie. Well, I think he's operating from his perspective. I mean, I think about this, I think about this a lot with like John Waters, with Pedro Almodovar, like there's, there's people who grew up in a very sort of counterculture space. And so their work inherently like, you know, I'll be like, oh, this is a satire of like true crime and the justice system and all these things. And it's like, yes, but we're, but these are artists who are coming from a place of like having this natural disdain for the, the mainstream culture and for law enforcement and for like, you know, it's not, it's not sort of like a protected liberal being like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to make a movie that, that really tackles the, the like flaws in our justice system. Instead, it's someone who's like, I inherently have this, like this dislike for, for this. And so now I'm going to make a movie that's funny and, Oh, it just happens to have this perspective because it's my perspective. And I think you're right. That's, it's such a more effective way of, making satire because yeah it loses some of that smugness and it's just funnier well and even though we're calling it satire there's also a part of it that's like a very funny take on what a serial killer movie is like in movies serial killers like what are some great examples of people that have killed for a reason in movies i mean like friday the 13th it's like revenge for her son and like the you know the the counselors being too sexually you know whatever and yes um okay scream is is uh well scream is sort of a bad example because that's scream, also yeah, scary. I, was like, that's, yeah. I was gonna use scream because it's like the only scary movie that i've seen and i was like no this is a terrible example of why someone would kill in a movie because it's making fun of other movies it's playing on the exact same trope it's, that this yes. is in some ways yes so i feel like with this one for me the part of the whole joke and the reason like tiros you mentioned this earlier like we have compassion for her. We're on her side. I want her to get away with killing these people. Like, and I think back maybe in the 90s, we weren't supposed to want that. I think we were supposed to be like, justice. But no, I, I want her to get away with it because she's so much fun and she's kind of right. These people are kind of terrible and they're breaking like these social contract rules for that she deems are important. And so I love that this is like a serial killer going after people for breaking really dumb rules, but also things that like would really like pet peeves, things that annoy us. Um, she's doing something about it. I totally agree with that. And I like how it puts you in her perspective. There were certain times where certain people were like, we see their transgression before <laughs> she ends up killed, like, like for a while, like, like the person who doesn't recycle, like we, there's a, there's a long stretch of time before that person gets any sort of, um, you know, that like she isn't immediately killed for that. And I kept being like, when is she going to kill the person who wasn't recycling? Well, she's really, she's really yeah. waiting on this one who, and it and it was like it's fun how it like puts you into that perspective of like in the in the context of the movie you're like yeah obviously kill kill your daughter's like asshole boyfriend like go for it like let's do it let's get this done <laughs> and he was he was an asshole and so yeah. in the movie world we're kind of like yeah you should get stabbed with a poker for trying to buy Tracy Lords a Franklin mint egg <laughs> that's brown and chipped I was thinking about like yeah who who is like acceptable to kill and it's. Yeah, the jock boyfriend, the like, I don't know. I do think, why are these like lonely old women okay to kill? It's like, I feel like even in Hitchcock, they get killed or like, the, the, why is that an okay trope to kill? And then 
And then like the Scotty death actually bothered me because I think we get to know Scotty and we sort of like him and we see him running and we sort of have his perspective too. And that death is also kind of particularly horrifying that everyone's watching and cheering and the the band helps and throws fire on him. And I do think it really smartly takes a turn where you're forced to confront your own uh, alliance with her. Right. I mean, I also think it's really interesting when they barge in on Scotty masturbating and (laughs) as she kills someone else. And again, it's like, how much is it just John Waters having fun and I'm over-intellectualizing it? But there is, it does feel like there's something to be said of like, oh, the our other main characters, the police are like fixating on this like pervy kid as opposed to, or not even pervy, he's just masturbating to porn or like, so like yeah. some dirty movie. Like it's like, it's not even who among us. Um, But it's, but it's like, that's where they're being like fixating on when she's off doing actual violence. Like that felt like an interesting like yeah, he's a, he's annoying, and he doesn't wear a seatbelt, which is really just hurting himself. <laughs> but like, but he he definitely, to me at least, as a as a viewer of pornography, like I, he doesn't, <laughs> yeah, like sometimes the things he says are a little bit teenage boy, and you're like, okay, not appropriate for the moment. But like, I don't know. I think maybe I'm I have a bigger issue with littering than with anything he does. <laughs> so there's also like yeah, like yes, how it's shown, it's like pretty brutal, and with everyone cheering and stuff. But also, I'm like he's just 16 <laughs> like yeah but I hadn't put together until now Tirish you're totally right that it's like older women that are usually the target and part of it I mean I guess is because that's who is in Kathleen Turner's circle you know like it's it's her friends they're all pretty much getting murdered it's people that would run in her circle but you're right why is that why are we so okay with that um but I actually would love to go over the crimes, quote unquote crimes that are committed by the people that get murdered and the murders themselves because they're just like fabulous. Um, My number one murder in the piece, obviously, would be the woman who does not rewind her videotape Mm -hmm. and rents Annie and starts watching it. And Kathleen Turner murders her with a lamb chop over the uh, chorus of tomorrow. You know, the sun will come out tomorrow, everybody. That beautiful Annie song. That's my favorite killing, obviously. It's like the most theatrical. Um, it's absolutely fabulous. And this is also the murder that Scotty's watching from the roof. This is when Scotty finds out she really is the killer. And we get a fake out for a second from Scotty's perspective where he's watching through the window and she, Kathleen Turner comes in with a knife as though she's going to murder her and then goes back into the kitchen and he goes, oh, thank goodness she's not the murderer. And then she comes back in with a lamb chop and does does the murdering. But that is by far, I think, my number one favorite murder for the crime of not rewinding a tape, um, which wouldn't even happen today. That can't even be a thing that occurs in our current world. Um, what were some of your favorite murders and crimes, offenses that they were the people were murdered for? I agree with you. And I also want to point out the which you've mentioned earlier, like the dog licking her toes while she's doing that. And what I love is like there's it's the most perverted thing that happens in the movie. And the way that certain people will like tongue kiss their dogs <laughs> is I, it, like it's just so fascinating what we deem as perverted and what we don't deem as perverted because I'm like that to me is way more perverted than like or I mean it depends if we're putting a value judgment on perverted but like it to me I'm way more grossed out than that than like two people consensually participating in like puppy play with like leather masks and stuff I'm like that feels okay that's like in a imagined space some suburban woman like 
letting a dog lick her toes while she like hasn't comes close to orgasm watching Annie like to me that like <laughs> it's very weird that like that's super weird to me I mean you know find your bliss I guess but like uh, yeah. do you know that it cost them like $65,000 to use that song because of the context of, in which it was used they tried I think they they set a price that they knew the filmmakers wouldn't buy and then they bought it they were like okay sure 65,000 sure we need it and John was like it can't be anything but Annie it's perfect oh I love that I did not know that tidbit and I love it oh wait wait, Drew what was your oh yeah Drew I think it was no I think it was that one but I also do love the final one because I I also love during the trial how she keeps looking at the shoes and like she she just like can't can't help herself and I also love just like during the killing the woman being like no rules of fashion have changed and she's like no they haven't yeah the white after labor day really cracked me up it cracked me up and i need to mention that that's patty hurst that actress is patricia hurst so juror number eight john waters used her in several films um like that's part of one of his tropes he used this like same cast of baltimore actors bink stole is one of them she's also in this film but yeah the woman the last the final killing over the white shoes with the with the um phone cord that's that's patty hurst wait who is patty hurst oh my gosh no that's okay she was uh the woman that was kidnapped and brainwashed i listened to the orang about 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 patty hurst so i have but um yeah, it was like William Randolph Hearst's uh, daughter, granddaughter, I think. Granddaughter, I think she's a granddaughter. Oh and and yeah, I was kidnapped and like where sort of people talked about like Stockholm syndrome and she eventually was led to follow the beliefs of her captors and then so then she served time because she did something. Oh, I'm really butchering this. I know that she got in trouble, but like she was brainwashed and it should not have been uh, the whole thing. She's notorious, essentially. And this this was all after her appearance in, in this. In no, this movies. is before it. No, no, no. That was before. Yeah. Oh, so John Waters is well aware of well yes. aware of who he's using. Yes, yeah. exactly. Oh, that's really And it makes it a little like notorious and infamous. Like he also used Tracy Lords in this, who's like famous for being in pornography. Um, she's like a fabulous porn star. And so he doesn't, he's not going to like judge that in a way that maybe people from the nineties would have. Yeah. And it like plays on the sort of um, media circus of yeah. around these things. And I, I love the detail of like, sorry, t we'll get to your favorite killing, but, <laughs> but like, I, I love the detail of how Sam Watterson, Eugene is always is like, in the beginning he's being like that person should be put to death that person needs the gas chamber and then like during the trial has a little pin that's like no the gas chamber is in like an is like x'd out and you're like it's it's just like sort of the convenience of different of certain people's activism and yes that's like my favorite moment of commentary that and then when they're in church and their priest or pastor i don't know what you call someone in a church they're i'm like they're rabbi but it's not jewish their priest person um gives that whole speech about like I think that Jesus what did like capital punishment. I yeah. mean, he was put to death and he never said anything <laughs> about it. And that would have been a great time to do it. So yay, capital punishment. So then at the end, when Sam Waterston is that pin, that's like no gas chamber. And he's reading a book that says, why maybe we shouldn't have capital punishment. Yeah. It's like, oh, now that it's your wife. Now that it's your wife. Now that it actually factors into your life. Yeah. It's it's like, it's exactly how politics works. How yeah. anyone changes their, and certainly 
certainly in the suburbs. And I mean, the, even even the fact that they love everyone loves true crime until it affects them. Like all the kids are like yeah. loving murder. One of my favorite moments, which I find so it's like the the one moment that really kind of hit me emotionally and surprised me is when after the Annie murder, they're they're looking, the kids are looking in, Birdie, Birdie and and Chip. Mm-hmm. Um, and Birdie sees the blood and gets really horrified. It's a kind of beautiful performance. And she yeah. says it's brown, which I think is maybe a joke on the roast. I don't know. Um, but she says, like, it's brown, not red, like in the movies. It's not like in the movies at all. And it's horrifying to watch her realize that like what they love is not the truth of violence yeah i don't know i think um chip's obsession with murder doesn't really become grotesque to me until he's selling real murder like until he's like trying to make money off of this like true story like the herschel gordon lewis movies and and the the you know william castle movie that we see like they're not it it's so clearly fiction and to me at least in my my ethics like I don't find anything really objectionable about that obsession, but then when it's like actually the sale of real life trauma and tragedy, like that's when it becomes grotesque to me. Yeah, there's this John Waters quote, RogerEbert.com interviewed John Waters in 2017 and now likes the movie. It's obviously <laughs> not Roger Ebert, but um, he said, John Waters said, I could happily watch dramatized violence that newscaster puts on the air, but I certainly would never want to watch real violence. I have no problem with fake violence. I can even enjoy it, but I have absolutely no desire to see real violence. And the violence in Serial Mom was always comic. And I and yeah. I think that's like a clear distinction he's making. Although I do find it interesting how much he loves talking about real life serial killers like Richard Speck. And I, I went on a Richard Speck Wikipedia rabbit hole last night and i don't recommend it oh my god it's horrifying and and heartbreaking um but i just i'm curious like i don't know i'm very curious what his distinction is and where like he draws a line with what's i guess not okay because you know it feels like his whole thing is like every i'll put everything filthy on screen but i I don't know it feels like he's commenting on the glorification of these serial killers as opposed to actually glorifying them himself yes Mm -hmm. Because by the end of the movie, we see regular like housewives being like, I love her. I'm a fan of Serial Mom, right? They're they're the ones buying the book from Matthew Lillard's or from Ricky Lake's character. You know, we're seeing that through them, just like what Beverly Suffin was doing with Marilyn Manson and Richard Speck and Ted Bundy. And side note, Ted Bundy's voice in this is a cameo by John Waters. That's John Waters speaking as Ted Bundy, which I loved reading. Um, But I actually want to go back to that birdie moment that you talked about, because that really struck me, too. It felt like one of the most kind of genuine moments of in a film of satire, you know, like it was the performance, like you were saying, she really she ends up being the only character, maybe besides Eugene, that has a character arc in the film because of that moment. She realizes the horror of what has happened, seeing like oh, the blood looks brown instead of red, like it does in the movies. And by the end of the the movie, she's reading, she's not into violence and she's reading a book that Gandhi wrote. <laughs> so it's like, they actually did give that character a full arc. Um, so I don't know. I, I thought that was a really smart moment to put in as well. And it does tie in with this Scotty moment that you were mentioning earlier, how Scotty's murder is the first murder that we feel a little bit icky about or a little sorry for in a way and it's because they gave both of those two characters humanity in those instances and then the Matthew Lillard moment I mean he's the one she says do I need a lawyer and he says no you need an agent Mm -hmm. um so that that kind of like 
solidifying of um, we're going to sell, we're going to sell this murder through Matthew Lillard's character. I don't know. I think that was, that was like a turning point kind of moment for his character. Or the, the jocks, the jocks brother who like is upset about the death of his brother and then turns on a dime when he's going to be, you know, mm-hmm. put in the movies. Yes. Um, yes. Which of course, like, I think John Waters is also satirizing Hollywood and how it's absurd that he's now an acceptable filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't there, he has a quote about being legitimate, being surprised at being seen as legitimate now. Cause he still feels like he's subversive. You got a star on the walk of fame this year or a few weeks ago, right? He just got a star on the walk of fame. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, all the Suzanne Summers of it all. And like it, it being like what, I don't know. It's like the different ways that we package these stories and it being like, oh, she's actually, you know, a woman who is, who, who's like falsely accused and da, 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 and like creating this thing. And I don't know. It's so interesting to see the different projections put onto her. And she's like, I really just don't want anyone wearing white after Labor Day and you need to recycle. Like it's not that complicated. And you need to rewind your tapes and you need to wear your seatbelt and you can't chew gum. There's other little moments of social commentary that I really love. There's the moment with the teacher and a, a black mother who he says like, some kids aren't just cut, aren't cut out for college. And it's this really, it's pretty early on. It's this very like subtle and also not at all subtle moment of commentary of like, again, the suburbs and and how racist they inherently are. Um, and part of why we we want that teacher to die. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and then the the other one is the the guy in the glory hole, the guy in the stall, yes. the gay man who mm-hmm. is getting arrested for the jocks murder is the first person in there and they're like, the cops won't listen to him. They're like immediately target him because he's the gay guy in the glory hole who's a pervert. Mm-hmm. And she gets away with murder because of like white privilege and because of the way that she is viewed by the public. Um, right. Because if it was any other kind of character, this whole story might go differently. She doesn't even try to cover up her tracks. When she um, stabs Carl with the poker, she like doesn't even wipe off the poker. It's still covered in blood <laughs> when she gives it back to Rosemary. And she has guts on her shoe. She like yeah. steps in it and we see her step in it. And I'm going, lady, wipe off your shoe. She doesn't even, she doesn't have to. She's still going to get away with it because of the package on the outside and how she's perceived. I really thought, I didn't know what this movie was going to be. I was like, wait, why isn't she trying to cover it up? I thought this was going to be a movie about her trying to get away. She's caught within like the first 20 minutes. I remember (laughs) pausing it at like 40 minutes and was like, how is there 50 minutes left in this movie when she's on the run from the cops? What, like, there's no, (laughs) she doesn't seem to care. She's sort of having fun with it from the beginning. Um, it's another thing that I think he carries over from his early movies. There's no real structure. I mean, he doesn't, he just kind of films shit. Like, they just keep going. I love it. I also love, like, when when Mink Stoll is on the stand, like, the fact that she is swearing is is, is enough for them to be like, nope. I mean, the, the whole trial is just people go, like, oh, they swear. Oh, you know, they, like, the the teenager the stoner like whatever these various things where it's like oh well we don't and she knows that and there's like a real yeah. sort of like yeah I don't know Mink Stoll is so good in this it'd be so fun to watch Mink Stoll is so good in this she's the only one that you are besides Beverly that you are rooting for you're like you poor lady I do want you to get out like I want you to be okay because yeah. she really is stressing you out with her foul language 
pussy willow, etc. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, the cursing on the stand is funny, especially because it's totally provoked and I loved it. But also I want to talk about the basic instinct callback in this film. Oh yeah. Uh, that we get yeah. with Kathleen Turner at this point, basic instinct would have been, come out two years earlier, very famous moment with Sharon Stone in an interrogation room, opening up her legs and not wearing underwear. Um, and I think she had said to just a side note for that movie, she didn't realize that that was going to be what was shown on film. And she felt like really taken advantage of in that moment as an actress. So just want to yes. put that out there. Um, but in this film, we get a callback to that. So when the quote unquote perv, the guy with the eat me glory hole is on the stand, um, Beverly knows the way to defeat him. And by the way, she's also representing herself, which is very, very silly. Mm -hmm. Um, she starts doing like a basic instinct leg opening thing, except she starts to flap her legs open in a very silly, I don't even, it's like chicken wings, but it's her legs. So it's like a very, very silly version and maybe a callback to basic instinct. And that's enough for him to be like, I made it all up. I'm a lot like, I, so <laughs> um, she gets away with everything because she knows how to play on the people on the stand and discredit them. And something I was surprised by in this movie is I, every, I've seen this movie quite a few times. But something that I was surprised by every time is that Rosemary doesn't get pinned for the crime. I always think, um, what's the actress's name? Mary Jo Catlett plays Rosemary Ackerman, um, who's the woman who doesn't recycle. And so I always think that she's going to get take the fall for Beverly because Beverly sets it up like, those were your scissors. That was your magazine that had the foul, you know, that I cut right. things out mm -hmm. of the foul language. So I always think they're going to set her up and she's going to go to jail and we'll be okay with it because she litters. Mm -hmm. um, but that's never how it goes. Uh, I always wanted to go there and it never quite goes there. Um, and then we're never really sure what happens to Beverly at the end. We end with a Chiron of like Beverly would not participate in the making of this film, but she does commit that final murder after the fact. So I don't know. We're never quite sure. Does she really get away with it? What's going on? In some ways, I think it would be too clean. He's not concerned with like a night uh, with good story structure to the point that it almost feels like, right, he's setting that up and then he doesn't follow through because I think he feels like, I don't care what happens with the <laughs> trial. <laughs> That's not the story I'm telling. Well, yeah. and she's also like a, you know, a suburban white woman who like wouldn't probably face punishment in that space anyways right oh my god and her family's even okay with it the journey of sam waterston and his sweet sweet face in this movie oh my god he's got the best facial expressions in this film but by the end of the film the whole family understands that their mom is a serial killer and they're like well just be on your best behavior we still love her yeah they, it feels like there's there's like a little bit of a moment of like what now like where they are like oh she got away with oh so she's just gonna come home with us okay <laughs> yeah it's a really scary concept <laughs> like how they're gonna have to walk on eggshells for the rest of their life yeah sam waterston is so freaking good he's yeah truly looks like yeah the sweetest little face and that sex scene is like watching <laughs> the the purest people like it's there's something the way they're bouncing up and down. I used to have this book called Where Do, Where Do I Come From? That was like teaching very young kids about, around, about sex. And it's like, here's how parents can have sex. 
And there's just a picture of two parents dressed as clowns on a bouncy ball, but their groins are connected. So like, it actually sort of distorts your view of sex, I think. I think it gave me a pretty bad, (laughs) incorrect Like I can only come when I'm I'm dressed as a clown now. I'm imagining Uh, like your first time, like putting on the full clown uniform and being like, so are we ready? (laughs) Slip into something more comfortable. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry, I didn't bring the bouncy ball. it, it, but I, it does feel like so cartoonish. And I think getting back to that John Waters tone, it just feels like, right, as you, I feel like someone said at some point, like there's just no, he's not concerned with representing reality. There's moments that can just so easily break from it. That, and that sex scene is a great example. I mean, that's one of the things. So I have a, a good quote about John Waters' style that I want to read. I, I'm embarrassed to say that I got it from Wikipedia, but you know what? It covered all the bases, so I'm going to read it here. Oh, yeah. um, so it basically says his work is campy and it has exaggerated characters and outrageous situations with hyperbolic dialogue. And I would say that hyperbolic everything else too. Like, I don't think it's just hyper hyperbolic dialogue. I think it's like hyperbolic moments. <laughs> so like the sex scene isn't just like a tender, loving sex scene. They're like in a, it looks like they are almost levitating off the bed. It's comedically bouncy. And I was trying to figure out how they shot it. And it just looks like they're in a harness. Like they're in a <laughs> Peter Pan kind of harness being like lifted up by set people <laughs> with like a blanket <laughs> underneath them. And it's hilarious. It's so exaggerated. And they're making very loud noises. The kids are grossed out by it, but it's like, as if, you know, Ozzy and Harriet are having crazy loud wild sex and it happens after she commits her first kill for her it's like victory sex mm-hmm. um but yeah so it's like this very exaggerated but also hilarious and also raunchy moment um it really ties in with that that John Waters style we mentioned Sam Waterston do we want to talk about Kathleen Turner and how amazing she is in this movie I love her in this movie she's so great she's so good she gets it like she just she's so funny and but yeah like what we were talking about earlier like does elicit some pathos and like she's just so good at at capturing the style oh my god especially the final shot to me when they freeze frame on her face like her ability to have this like completely murderous deadly stare but then also completely embody this other character it's like the two sides of the coin that she plays so so well of like deranged serial killer that we're still rooting for but then like (laughs) happy-go-lucky mom who loves birds there's moments where the the happy-go-lucky mom is an act like when she like pretends to laugh at the joke in in the school and she like clearly has disdain for these people that she's covering up but some of it is very sincere the birding I think she does legitimately like the birds I think she does really love her kids like it Again, back to Ebert's point, I think he's spot on and I think he's wrong about it being a bad choice. I think it's a bizarre terror. It's an unsettling choice. She feels very real at times in a very scary way. Yeah. Also, I love that like that first, I don't know, the title sequence of the movie haven't even hasn't even started yet with the fly. And we already know exactly who she is, and her death stare comes out when the fly is buzzing around. <laughs> Again, it just this movie just like rockets off and you know exactly what it is and it never deviates it's like yeah yep this is what this movie is we're gonna watch kathleen turner 
be a really nice mom and then get a death stare for a fly and try to kill it. And that's just going to be the repeated beat for the next 90 minutes. But you're still going to like it. Oh, it never gets old. Like, I want to break down the moment for listeners at home that Tirosha is talking about. So the movie opens, we get our fake, like, based on real events, <laughs> Chiron title card thing. But then it's like sunny blue skies. So beautiful. Gorgeously shot Americana. Their house is perfect four people sitting down to breakfast your classic like dad and mom and teen banter i think at one point matthew lillard's character is like i'm so happy i could shit or something like that and she says (laughs) chip you know how i feel about the brown word right (laughs) so we've set up this great like americana storyline and then we see this fly that's driving her absolutely nuts and it's it lands on her children's toast and it lands on her husband's orange juice and when she swats it we get a close-up of the dead fly with the blood and that's when we see written and directed by john waters and it's perfect it's like a perfect opening it's a perfect moment it tells us exactly what this movie is and it tells us who john waters is just from that like close-up of the bloody gory fly it's Mm -hmm. like it's just so perfectly set up I love her her delight in making those dirty phone calls. The way that the way she revels in cocksucker and pussy, yeah. she's <laughs> having so much fun. I was dying of laughter watching her. Like it's there's something childlike about it. She's so yes. excited to scream those words. But then I'm just remembering the, the little flashbacks to why she does it. That uh, the she Mink still cut her off in the parking lot joanne fabrics parking lot yes she never kills without a reason she's always got there's wait what's the other flashback that happens so quickly does anyone remember there's like another moment like that where it flashes back the one i remember the most is the mink stole one i don't remember i'm gonna have to go back and look it up but the mink stole flashback feels so it's so funny to be like don't worry she has a good reason well and i love that part of the reason too so it's like don't worry she has a good reason like mink stole cut her off in the joanne fabrics parking lot but also mink stole is divorced and you can tell that kathleen turner does not like that right mm-hmm. that that character is divorced so she deserves this insane harassment and you're right i love the reveling in it and i also love that it's like kathleen turner has an iconic voice and so she has this like gorgeous speaking voice and then when she goes into her like uh obsessive calls where she's calling me stolen using this different voice i love the voice that she uses it's like a very husky like kind of voice (laughs) it's great it's like such a perfect such a perfect casting choice such a perfect use of her voice i love it i also love the the number you've mentioned the the chiron i love the 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 numbers throughout being like 508 p.m monday morning 5 a.m as if it's a legitimate crime movie he's just it's such a like half-assed parody of an actual crime movie but it's so perfect it's so and apparently people did think it was real i had a moment where i had to look up like wait is it is this a true story he says it is he says it is i looked it up i did too we all do it and then we're like oh wait it's clearly not you i see what you did there drew you were above it i was gonna say i didn't i did (laughs) but yeah i was pretty sure that it wasn't true (laughs) but only because it's him Yeah. yeah And because we would have heard of this woman killing <laughs> with scissors and an air conditioning unit and all the other things. That might be my favorite kill. Oh, we never got to your favorite kill. The air conditioning unit was your favorite kill. That was the flashback. You got it. That It was the, it was the chicken one. I love, oh my God, the moment yep. when they're devouring the chicken and then it quickly flashbacks just to a bird and she's like, not on my watch, <laughs> not a bird. I love that one. Cracked me and up. they complained about her husband too. They complained about him being a dentist. 
Mm -hmm. husband like put everything down that day. It was a weekend. So he could help this man with his tooth. And they're still saying mean things about her husband. So their crime was talking bad about him and eating birds, which I also feel like they might've had chicken for dinner too, but it wasn't on the bone. That was the first time I was like, a little bit of hypocrisy there, huh? The, because yeah. I mean, I guess we all have we all have our our lines of I mean, I'm not vegan, so I can't be on any sort of high horse, but I don't need horse. So, you know, it is one of those things that we all have our we all have our things. Yeah. Horses where you draw the line. <laughs> do, do, I have a question. Do people think there's a there's a moment in the dentist's office where he's I think the husband says, like, you're enjoying getting paid, like putting me in pain. Mm. Does the husband, is the husband also sociopathic? And does he enjoy inflicting pain as a dentist? Because it does feel like he is not using Novocaine or something. It does feel like he's, he is causing an a, a unreasonable amount of pain to that guy. I mean, don't they say that, I don't want to say this about dentists, I'm sorry, but isn't that just like the trope that all dentists like pain? Like, I'm thinking of Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. You know, you'll be a dentist. Like, it's very, I feel like that's already the trope. So that, I hadn't put that together till right now, but I think it really works. That's why their marriage is perfect. And that's why they'll be <laughs> together forever. <laughs> <laughs> Or yeah, in some ways he's he's saying we we all have a little sadist in us that it's yeah. it's silly to for anyone to be on a high horse. Yeah. Also, didn't you love the pop art of the tooth in that office? It's a tooth with let with like ladies' legs. It's like a sexy tooth. There's one that looks like the who's the the famous um artist that does it looks like comic books almost. Lichtenstein. Lichtenstein. <laughs> I feel like he had a Lichtenstein tooth in his office. This is a side note. Back to Sam Waterston. One of my favorite moments in the whole movie is when um, he's asking her if she's a serial killer. And then he goes very seriously from his heart. Is it menopause? <laughs> he, I, love it. Like, I love that. It's just so endearing. And so like, oh boy, you know, nothing. He's so genuine. I was reading about this. Is it, is it menopause? <laughs> also shout out. I just saw Scream for the first time. Um, and so I'm now a Matthew Lillard fan. I never really yes. knew why he was famous. And now after watching these two, I think he's very good. Um, and also a nice double feature of him working in video stores and yeah, loving horror, uh, loving horror. Not that he's the one who works yeah. in video store and scream. I know that <laughs> listeners. No, I think this was like the perfect training ground for him to do scream. It's like, this was the stew training camp. Like yeah. he loves horror. He's knowledgeable about movies, um, is kind of totally fine with murder um, and makes jokes about it. But yeah, I, I love Scream a lot. It's one of the only horror films I can watch and I really love it. And I feel like um, Matthew Lillard in both of these is just fabulous. Well, Drew, I'm curious because you love horror films. Yeah. Can you please tell me what you like about horror films? As someone who does not love horror films, I don't like to feel afraid. <laughs> it just stresses me out too hard. The satire of this really was validating for me because I love horror and I hate true crime. Like I really, like not even from like, yes, from an ethical standpoint, but also just from like a visceral standpoint. Like I really, I really struggle with, with true crime stuff. And like, if it's, there's certain true crime things that I think are good and done well and I'll watch it but like I really I struggle the way that I think people who don't like horror struggle with horror um I mean there's so many different types of horror um I do tend to like most of them but uh and I think for various different reasons but I do think there's something you know it's like sort of the classic things of like it, it's like a roller coaster like it's nice to have contained fear I think I'm a very anxious person it's nice to have something where I'm like I'm going to feel anxious for 90 minutes and it's like a very like it's very contained um 
horror can be made cheaply and a lot of i feel like it it from like old hollywood like val luton horror to like i don't know blair witch project to skin and like all these things are they're they're places for artists to experiment and to have a lot of freedom in a way that i think other genres require more of a polish and and therefore um more money and and more oversight um with horrors like if if you can be scary you can get away with a lot of other things so i just find it to be also one of the most interesting genres one of the best movies ever made about ptsd and sexual trauma is slumber party massacre 2 and it's like that that's a movie where the killer like has a a uh, drill attached to a guitar like it's like it and it's this thing where you're allowed to sort of get at these like really serious um truthful things because you have this the killer with the guitar and so people like that's what people fixate on and so it feels like it allows for more freedom and then there's horror that isn't summer party massacre too and it's like a little bit more refined and i think there's a lot of good stuff there too but um yeah i love i do love horror i do think watching queer for fear that the it's a docuseries about queerness and horror really helped me appreciate sort of specifically queer directors finding like feeling like the monster and that and that um metaphor being acted out or or um there's actually in this john waters interview he said something about i like to show the things that a society is anxious about because i think the way to get over those anxieties is to first laugh at them and i think it's a i mean i'm about to get very pretentious but it's a very like greek theater like catharsis idea of all if we can scream about it if we can cry about it that like any form of catharsis is actually a way to cope with these fears that are inherent um and i think going back to like the suburbs i really think part of what he's dealing with in, in like the way that sexual repression doesn't stop the deviancy it doesn't st- it actually makes it worse it, it causes people to i think act out in more horrific ways um this idea that we're removing ourselves from violence in society i think causes actually a really disgusting unhealthy relationship with violence and true crime and i think what he's trying to get at is that i think we've said this already but that showing it um is actually a way to heal it and talk about it and put it out in the open as opposed to pretending it doesn't exist and having these sort of secret repressed desires one thing that we forgot to talk about that we obviously need to talk about is um daybreak the barry manilow song being so perfectly featured in this film um (laughs) i would say daybreak is like her anthem when she is (laughs) after she's committed crime she's listening to it when she goes on um her the police chase scene where she's in order to not hear the sirens behind her she blasts Barry Manilow's Daybreak like I love that moment I love that <laughs> juxtaposition um yeah I, I I don't know I guess that kind of ties into what you were saying of like we're sugarcoating this like you're gonna go do something terrible but you're doing it like a Hallmark movie yeah what what represents sexual repression more than Barry Manilow <laughs> <laughs> and truly I love Barry Manilow <laughs> I, I have Daybreak like over there. I've listened whenever I listen to it though, I do think of this movie and it makes me laugh. As John Waters would want and Barry Manilow would probably hate. <laughs> but it is interesting, like talking about sexual repression, I feel like Ricky Lake's character is not sexually repressed in this. Like she's constantly like, she has the very funny, like, I just want a boyfriend kind of like trope of the past. Like it's very clear, like she just, she's into all the guys that come her way. She usually picks like the wrong one until she picks the journalist photographer and he's clearly the right guy for her. 
I love when they're making out in the middle of the trial at the least sexy moment. Just it's so arbitrary. So I feel like she's not repressed, but I wonder what the commentary is on that. It's just, it's very funny. Maybe there's not, again, maybe I'm just overthinking it and there's not really commentary and it's just funny and like a little bit trashy. And that's part of the joy. Well, I think as you said, she's, she's, it begins as a very like, you know, leave it to Beaver or, or Brady Bunch trope of like I want a boyfriend I'm the daughter and it's very pure and innocent and then it it gets just more and more sexualized in a more in a more real way of like no she's like fully tonguing this this guy <laughs> in her mother's trial at the decision moment she couldn't care less about her mother going to jail she's making out with this guy and she's selling merch with him outside um benefiting yeah. off the crowd right like yeah it's interesting like what because like yeah it of course you're like ooh, why are you making out during this moment but it's like what what is it about like why is that something that immediately gives us a visceral ick but then the people who are participating in the trial itself it doesn't I don't know I mean maybe again maybe it's not commentary but that that's that's yeah. my only read on that is like what what things give us a visceral reaction and what doesn't I also just love the detail of like her after school job is working at a swap meet like finding things that she collects to sell at a swap meet. Like, I just loved, I loved that detail. Um, and her getting, like, selling a PB Herman doll. Just all, of, I don't know. It was a, a nice little weird twist. It's not the job you'd expect her to have. Had Paul Rubens already had, like, the whole scandal of, like, him being at the porn theater? Like, had that happened already when this? I think that it had. Okay. Wait, don't quote me on that. But I think that it had. I'm sure he knew Paul Rubens was gay, which I only learned very recently that Paul Rubens was gay and Jewish and a really lovely guy. I don't know if I went on a real Paul Rubens deep dive after he died. And it was just like tons of comedians coming out about what a lovely, sweet man he was. Yeah, he was arrested in 1991. So yeah, definitely commentary. And then and what is her her shitty boyfriend says something like, what? Pee-wee's a weirdo or something. Yeah. 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 He also won't take her to the University of Maryland Memorial Beach Day blast unless she loses 10 pounds. So Carl's a real asshole. Uh, yeah, Carl's a real dick. But there's a there's a beautiful Paul Rubens quote where he says the thing he's proudest of is letting weird kids know that they are okay and that they're not alone. That like mm. kids would write to him, would write letters to him saying, I thought I was weird. And then I watched Pee Wee's Playhouse and I felt okay. Um, and he was so proud of like, being a voice for the kids who felt weird and like outcasts, which feels like a real nice connection to John Waters too. Yeah. Um, I was just passing through my notes and I saw one of my favorite quotes, which is at the swap meet when someone buys a picture of Don Knotts and goes, fucking Don Knotts, he's the coolest. And I just love that that's in this movie. <laughs> and then below that, I wrote $158 New York money good enough for you because that's the guy that buys the Pee Wee Herman doll. Um, and I just love that it's like this city chump, he's going to pay $158. But I did love that line and it was right below the Don Knotts line. I also love the Joan Rivers show thing where they're interviewing the woman that's um, dating the serial killer in jail. Mm -hmm. I thought that was oh, yeah. like a really fun, really cool tie-in. And Joan Rivers is, she's like, I don't judge him. And Joan Rivers is like, but he's killed people. And she's like, but he's handsome and famous and we get conjugal visits. And it just felt very like fitting for this film. Like that could be Beverly's future with her husband. Yeah. Any other favorite moments that you, we haven't talked about that you're like, ah, I want to talk about this. I, I wrote down the Don Knotts moment and then having 
and then having Suzanne Summers and the the judge saying I loved her in Three's Company, being like, oh, real Three's Company through line in this movie. <laughs> Yeah. I also love the way that she wakes up Chip. That's like the creepiest, weirdest thing where she gets real close to her son's face and goes, Chip. And he wakes right up and she like backs out really fast so that he doesn't know what she's done. And I secretly think if I have children, I'm going to do that to them because I think that's really, really funny. And I loved it. And it was so, it fit with her um, serial killer thing. I, what did I just say about myself then? Like, if I do that to my children, am I a serial killer? I don't know. No, she. it feels like she would torture her children, but not kill them. You know, she would kind of play with them, but I, I also the we haven't talked about the booger on the baby moment and I do it feels like it deserves a mention it's just a, a wild moment that like the thing that sets off the church is that she sneezes and launches a booger on a baby's face I I don't have anything to say beyond that other than remembering that there's a moment where a booger gets launched on a baby it allows her to escape and get to a club eventually where there's a band camel lips and they all have camel toes was that a real band drew can speak to that right that it's a real band oh yeah it's called l7 cool i i love that he was like i'm gonna yeah i'm gonna feature a female punk band Mm -hmm. like it feels like a very just conscious decision and that they're gonna be really cool and roll with this whole murder thing yeah it's all (laughs) part of the show you know it's part of the show we didn't like scotty anyway did he have cool hair yes did we like him no I, re- I definitely want to watch it again. Like, it definitely was one where I was like, oh, this is going to be one I revisit many times for sure. It's so watchable. It's so fun. It's so watchable. And it's so gorgeous. Like, it's a gorgeous looking movie. I have this theory that movies that were shot originally on film have like a richer palette to them. Like, they just look better than films that are shot digitally. Um, and this film yeah. just looks beautiful. Like, it's so gorgeous looking. And I I I love it. I think it's so pretty. Um, it's pretty and it's got its like cute little gross moments that look gorgeous, even though they're gross, you know, like the rat biting her ankle still beautiful because of the way they shot. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's what's so funny to me about John Waters is that he's so brilliant and he also reads so much. Apparently his, his apartment is just like filled with books. I know that like that, you know, that quote is always attributed to him. Um, if you take someone home, don't sleep with them unless they have books. That's a really um, Beverly approved way of saying, repeating that quote. I know. Really, really I was... cut, out, cut out the swear words. I know. I, you know, we're on a podcast. Do not make love to someone who doesn't appreciate literature. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You can all go look up the real quote, but I won't be caught saying it. <laughs> I do love that. Like he's clearly so well read, such a student of movies. It's so funny him making these trashy movies, but being a clearly brilliant filmmaker, just knowing so much about film and literature and being such a brilliant guy. I agree. Um, I'm going to head us into the modern lens. But before I do that, I actually have my own question. So this movie, like she's murdering people because of pet peeves and like polite rule following societally. What are some of your pet peeves? Like what if we made this movie today? What would some of the pet peeves that you would hypothetically kill for in this in this universe in this serial killing universe like like cutting in line that's one that like as a kid really bothered me I think as the years have gone on a lot of my like indignance over pet peeves has filtered into like you know larger more legitimate political things but that one's still I still just like it's the entitlement I mean what I try whenever I see someone do it, I try to be like, okay, maybe they're in a heart. They need to. I don't know what's going on in their life. You also just reminded me in this movie when she's following Scotty into the club, Scotty cuts the line and jumps into the club and That's she true. goes to the back of the line. That's true. And I love that moment. 
And she only tries to get to the front when it is an emergency. And I was like, ooh, she is following those rules. I see what she did there. Tirosh, do you have one, a pet peeve? I mean, it's sort of basic, but like not cleaning up trash. Like if you spill something and you don't immediately at least offer to clean it up, Mm. I think that's nuts. I think that's so rude to a space. And then also, I mean, it's such an annoying like feeder answer, but talking in a in a play or you know if you're in a play and you're like whispering what did he say or like and I you know I don't want to accuse anyone who's who's hard of hearing or but I do think that it's very annoying to talk in a play or like you know if you're like putting your feet up on a chair like in a theater that's just that's absurd taking your phone out in a theater who are you put your phone away you're ruining it for everybody yeah movie theaters regular theaters all of it Put that phone away. I don't like when people take their phone out at a talk back after a movie as if the movie's over and the talk back you can text during because unless you're taking notes, that filmmaker is still up there and can see you. I think it's even more rude than texting during the movie because they're looking right at you. I'm definitely guilty of of the of like, you know, especially during a film festival, if like there's a Q&A and I've been like, I, 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 I try to be somewhat respectful i'm like yes there are people on stage talking so i don't want to be like brazen about it but i might i might have to respond to a few things but i guess i'm getting killed by t roche in this yeah sorry (laughs) also this is a very city specific thing like anyone else that listens to this in the country is like what are they talking about what is what is what is a q a (laughs) why would anyone sit through that (laughs) (laughs) um I got to think about this before. So I wrote three of them down that I thought of. One is when people spit their gum out anywhere that is not in a wrapper into the trash can. If I see gum on the street, gum on anything, I'm like, you have either just ruined someone's day or murdered an animal because an animal will try to eat that. Do what you got to do, but don't be a monster and spit it out on the street like a horrible person. I would, that's one of my Beverly ones. Also, when people um, are in traffic and they don't use their blinker, Oh, it makes me so mad. Use your damn blinker. I need to communicate with you. I can't read your mind. Use your blinker. And then when people play videos or music on their phone in public and we're all in a shared space and they don't use headphones. I really hate that. I hate it a lot. Mm-hmm. This isn't necessary. This like feels like too legitimate. I'm like, this isn't a pet peeve. This is real. But like people who don't tip well, <gasps> like... I- Oh, yeah. especially when it's also like I don't know when people do it also from a place of like well this happened and so I'm punishing and it's like it's like okay then tip 20% instead of 25% like you don't like being like I'm gonna I'm gonna not tip because this person did that. it's like that's a time where you're like that person's at work and they didn't mm-hmm. maybe do something exactly to your liking but like but the system we've set up is that that's how they make their that's living their, that's their yes. living you, or do you think that they whatever they did to you was so bad that they don't deserve to like be able to pay their rent so correct that's- this is a really small nitpicky one but like billionaires who hoard wealth and then subsidize <laughs> fossil like fossil fuel economies yeah. and are like destroying mm-hmm. our planet but mm-hmm. you know care more about their own wealth yeah something like, like yeah, a little pet peeve yeah yeah like when people in line do that if only beverly slept and across their paths you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah so everybody at home that's uh if if we were beverly Sutton, that's what you'd go down for just saying um all right so we've now reached the modern lens portion of this show what does hold up what doesn't hold up um something hilarious that did not hold up uh in the light of day was that bill cosby quote (laughs) something like everybody loves bill cosby and i was like oh you don't even know yet you don't know i think it kind of holds up perfectly actually (laughs) i mean it's it's she she's it's the movie's ghost dad which is hilarious in itself and her saying i just love bill cosby movies i think is like 
the perfect retroactive commentary. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. It it ends up being yeah, it ends up being like oh right, because like this sort of wholesome suburban family persona is often hiding something much much more sinister and they even have that quote in there about like she's such a bitch she must get it from watching all those family films like even that, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. that. That's, yeah. that's actually that's the quote that i was trying to remember yeah that yeah. i love the influence yeah. of all those family films is like so good um i also i wasn't a huge fan of the chicks with dicks magazine moment about trying to shame someone for like framing that as being like a bad thing that you shouldn't be reading and then it felt like a little bit anti-trans and I, it, but it was a different time and I know that there was like trying to make commentary so it's like a mixed bag yeah I feel like it would I feel like it would bother me more if because of like Elizabeth Coffey in Pink Flamingos and like I just I think I give John, maybe I shouldn't, I mean, obviously John Waters isn't trans, I shouldn't give him a pass, maybe, but like, I do give him a pass because I'm like, if you were putting trans women in, in your movies in the 70s and like clearly are in a very queer space with, I mean, I mean, Divine wasn't trans, but like John Waters movies were playing with gender deviance in this way that I think I, I, I feel like more of a trust with him. So I'm like, it doesn't bother me as much as it would in another movie where I'd be like, oh, well, the joke clearly is on me. Whereas here I'm like, I feel like the joke is on some of the like hypocrisy of of the things that people like value in private but not in public but yeah I mean it probably was meant you know I don't know like it's it's a little bit like eye-rolly but I think I, I give John Waters a pass personally just me <laughs> <laughs> and Yatiro she had mentioned some good moments earlier too about like there's like that call in about racism where you're like ooh that holds up that we mentioned this oh and you also mentioned you know older women kind of being the target and us being okay with that as viewers we didn't really think twice about it I didn't think twice about it watching um female trouble last night I never quite know if he's laughing with or laughing at and as Drew said I think I give him a pass because it does feel like he's celebrating so many different types of people and yeah um but I don't know. He he makes some kind of fat phobic jokes in some of his interviews. And I am wondering how much he's laughing at these sort of like sad older women. And it, honestly, in a way that Hitchcock does too, it just feels like a, such a trope in horror movies. And um, I, it's, it doesn't like so viscerally bother me, but I think it's something to question. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think what holds up so well is just like, you know, what we've been talking about this whole time about, through crime and the media and I, I do feel like we're sort of always as a culture being like wow true crime is really having a moment and it's like it it's been having a moment since like you know ever forever, forever. um and so I think I think that is still feels really sharp um and and in a way that is I think a lot smarter than than other like takes on satirizing true crime that last season of Black Mirror had one. This movie that I despise that came out this year called Susie Searches was like commenting on true crime. Like this feels, it's it's a hard balance, but I, I th- and I, I think there's like a reason why it's a hard thing to satirize maybe, but um, this does it so well. It does it so, so well. I think what really holds up too is I talked about it earlier, but just the fact that like her privilege as a white woman is so obvious. And mm-hmm. so clearly why she gets away with this crime that maybe somebody else in her shoes that was not a cis straight white woman would not 
like get away with so easily. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that pretty much holds up. All right. We're going to move into the double feature portion of this show. If you liked this movie, check out these other movies. So actually I've already seen the perfect double feature of this film. Um, Last year I saw a double feature at Nubev of polyester and serial mom. And I was given this fabulous uh, odorama polyester card so I could fully experience polyester in, um, in odorama. I'm going to take a picture of this and show people at home. It was absolutely fabulous. So yeah, I, I think that's great. Like you can watch John Waters films with this movie. So the other John Waters films, I mean, Hairspray, Polyester, Crybaby, Female Trouble, Pink Flamingos, check out those films with this. But I think tonally, um, To Die For is a film that I have never seen that has been on my list forever. Mm. It's Nicole Kidman as an ambitious young woman who will do anything to get to the top. And um, I've heard it's very similar tonally. So I would check that out. Um, I love Scream a lot and that kind of satirizes horror film. So I think that would be a really great double feature. Um, War of the Roses stars Kathleen Turner. Um, It's kind of like two people getting a divorce, going all out, being unhinged and how they get back at each other. I think that would be a good double feature. And then Straight Jacket, the film within the film here, the Joan Crawford film, um, would also be a great double feature. Uh, So yeah, those are my double feature recommendations. Do you have any out there? Do both of you have any? Yeah, To Die For is great. I hadn't thought about that. That's To Die For is such a good movie and it would be a really good double feature. And then um, this is a movie called Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker, which is an absurd title for a movie that I think is actually like really brilliant and great. Um, going back to our conversation about horror. And it's it's about this woman who is like the primary caretaker for her nephew. And she's like obsessed with her nephew and he's like going off to college soon and she does not want him to leave her. And she starts like killing people in order to sort of keep control over her nephew who she has like a weird psychosexual relationship toward. Um, and she's so, I'm trying to remember who the actress is. She's, it's like, it's another incredible performance. Um, and she's so unhinged the entire time. Uh, Susan Tyrell is, she's, oh, she's incredible. Um, and the police assume that the murders that are happening are the nephew's gay PE coach. And they're just like, oh, well, it must be, the the nephew must be in some sort of like gay thing with the, with the gay PE coach. And and it's so obvious, though, that it's this woman. Like, she's, like, there's no, the way that in Zero Mom, like, Kathleen Turner, like, sometimes is all, like, put together. This this woman is, like, the whole time you're, like, this is obviously the person killing all the people in the town. But no one in the town will acknowledge <laughs> it because of, like, what we were talking about with, like, you know, she's, like, this suburban, white, straight mom type. And so they're mm-hmm. just, like, oh, well, she certainly couldn't be this person. And you're watching, you're, like, yes, it obviously is her. It's obviously her. <laughs> Um, and it, I just think it's so fun and, and campy, but also like really sharp. And I was thinking about that a lot watching Serial Mom. I think that's a great title. I wouldn't watch horror, but I'd watch that. Like just title yeah, love. It came out in 1981 and is is just like really, it's really fun. And yeah, originally the title was Night Warning and then it was changed to Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. And neither of those titles feel particularly descriptive of this movie, but it's great. So highly recommend. I was thinking about the movie that you were describing to me, Drew, that you just saw um, about the the new Todd's, uh, Todd Haynes movie. Oh, oh, the new, oh, May, December. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I don't want to say, I don't want to spoil it because it hasn't even come out yet. I don't want to spoil too much, but I just went to a press screening of it and it's 
incredible. I do think that Todd Haynes, for obviously we're talking about how John Waters has like gained a certain amount of respectability. That's that's pretty funny in the context of his work. But I think that like it's interesting to me the way that Todd Haynes has really received that respectability because of sort of I think straight people not fully getting like far from heaven and carol and 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 his more sort of like straightforward melodrama type movies um but i think john waters and todd haynes have other than just being gay i think like their gayness on screen uh is really parallel in like how in their like love of melodrama and their and and sort of like the stories that they're interested in telling and and how they deal with violence so i don't know i i yeah that's that's true tirish like go see may december when it comes out the movies I'd pair. So my pairing is thematically Chicago because I think it deals with our obsession with murder and particularly women's role in like murder and being justified or not justified for it. And it's a musical and fun. Um, and I think, is Rob Marshall gay? Yeah. Yeah, right. There you go. Also a queer <laughs> filmmaker. <laughs> it has to be a gay director. Um, so yeah, my I would pair Chicago with this. Also, um, the Kathleen Turner movie, The Man with Two Brains, which is a Steve Martin, Carl Reiner film that I will warn you, you have to wade through a lot of sexism that I'm almost hesitant to recommend it. It's most of it does not hold up, but some of it is so delightful. Um, And Kathleen Turner similarly plays a murderous uh, serial killer who's delightful. Um, Oh, which I might also pair this with uh, Adam's Family Values to see uh, oh. <laughs> Joan yeah. Cusack as a delightful uh, murderess. <laughs> That's a great one, too. <laughs> and really great commentary about the origins of um, American Thanksgiving. Yes, that famously TikTok um, scene. All right. Oh, that was great. Well, thank you both so much for being here. How can people reach you after this? Or um, how can they find you on social media? Do you have any projects that you want to promote? And obviously people at home, we are keeping in with SAG guidelines. Um, I'm on Instagram at Drew Burnett Gregory, and I'm on Twitter if I don't use it as much as I used to, but um, as draw underscore Gregory. And you can find a lot of my like film criticism and culture writing at Autoshuttle, where I'm a senior editor. Um, you can find me on Instagram at, at T. Roche's Petals. Um, and... I don't know. On on Instagram, I'll post about anything else that I'm doing. Also, I should mention people at home. Um, the Academy Museum has a John Waters exhibit right now called Pope of Trash that will be around till I think next year, fall of 2024. Um, and ironically, after we record this, I'm literally going to that after this. So I will be so knowledgeable after the fact. And I'll be like, oh, why didn't we wait to record the podcast until after I saw this exhibit? Um, so I'm gonna, I'm just about to know a lot of things about John Waters that um, will be totally useless for this episode. Uh, but check that place out and check that exhibit out. Um, it, it should be really cool. And I know they're doing a lot of John Waters screenings at the museum. So check it out. Um, and thank you both so much for being here. It was lovely chatting with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And we'll see you all next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guests this week were Drew Gregory and Tiro Schneider. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on Anchor.fm or Spotify for Podcasters because they're the same thing now to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening.